Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, Episode 7. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about the piano sonatas of Opus 10. Jumping to Opus 10 means that we're going to skip over Opus 7, his grand sonata in E-flat major, a long and, especially in the slow movement, overtly emotional work, which may have reflected his feelings for his teenage piano student, the Countess Babetta Keglevich, according to Beethoven's biographer Swafford. It would not be the only time that Beethoven would become, at least temporarily, enamored of his young female students, who were always completely inaccessible to him, of course. The sort of emotion hinted at in the E-flat sonata is less apparent in the C minor sonata from Opus 10, but that does not mean that the work is somehow introspective or emotionally neutral. In fact, it is rather dramatic in a quite distinctive and sometimes perplexing way, as we shall see. Kenneth Drake, in comparing this sonata with the later mature sonatas such as Opus 109 and 111, refers to the Opus 10 sonata in C minor as representing the impulsiveness of youth, pointing out the ways in which the freakishness of the finale departs from the forthright earnestness of the first movement. We'll begin by looking at a simplified and slowed-down example of the first part of the first subject, the first eight measures in C minor and 3-4 time. As you heard, we basically have two alternating ideas. The first, something of a robust, high-energy ornamented skyrocket up the tonic C minor chord, similar to the opening of the first movement of the F minor sonata, but here rhythmically enlivened by the dotted 8 16th note patterns, and a quieter, simpler response, taking us to a dominant 7th. The more robust dotted rhythm motive then takes us up a diminished 7th leading tone chord, heard as an extension of the dominant 7th which preceded it and the quieter response takes us back to tonic. But it all happens very quickly up to tempo, which is marked allegro molto e con brio, and which is frequently taken at such a fast clip that the 16th notes following the dotted eighths sound more like grace notes. You heard just a little of the two-bar phrase that follows this dynamic opening statement, it begins on the fifth note of the scale, the G, and after a couple of ascending grace notes, moves more cautiously down the scale to tonic. The phrase is given a varied repeat, and then, more emphatically, another more varied repeat, in which the descending line is extended down an octave, with rhythmic displacements across the bar. The phrase ends on the dominant, and we then pass on to a somewhat puzzling group of arpeggio-based figures, which beginning pianissimo, outline first a pair of diminished seventh chords, and then more vehemently the dominant seventh itself, before finishing off on a tonic chord. This passage does manage to keep the tension level high, but it doesn't seem otherwise to have much to do with anything we've heard so far. Following this slightly problematic intrusion, a variant of the opening phrase with its dotted eighths and sixteenths moving up the triad is reintroduced and the first subject comes to an end after a robust cadence on C minor. Here are the first eight bars again, but continuing on this time to the second part of the first subject and to the return of the initial idea to bring it to a close.
After the emphatic cadence in C minor, the modulatory transition begins after a single measure of rest to provide some separation. The most conventional choice for a second subject key when starting in C minor is E flat major. And although we know Beethoven doesn't always make conventional choices in these matters, he does here. And the modulatory transition separates itself from the original key of C minor immediately as it begins its journey to the new key. As far as the nature of the transition itself, we've seen transitions something like this before. For example, the opening movement of the F minor sonata again, where the sense of rhythmic momentum is diminished considerably, as is the texture, and we hear a series of right-hand motives repeated over slower moving and thin, almost wispy left-hand chords. The primary motive that holds the transition together starts with an ascending sixth, after which it descends with a gentle undulation a number of non-harmonic tones, and some more across-the-bar ties. Initially, the idea seems to suggest a modulation to A-flat major, but when the motive is repeated again, we seem to be heading toward F minor. The second time the idea is repeated, and this time the descending undulation is extended, the tonal goal seems briefly to be D-flat major, but Beethoven's chromatic sleight of hand soon makes it clear that we're actually heading toward E-flat major, and he even goes to some length to prolong the dominant seventh of E-flat for eight whole measures to erase any doubt in our minds as to what our ultimate goal may be. Here is the modulatory transition. The second subject, securely in E-flat major, also begins with an arpeggiation up the tonic triad, but that's where any comparison with the first subject begins and ends, since the second subject is serene, gentle, and initially expansive, and unfolds slowly. Its first four-measure phrase ends on the dominant chord, with the second phrase being an embellished variant of the first, beginning up a third over a gentle broken chord accompaniment. Following this initial 8-bar presentation of the new theme, we are presented with what appears to be a variant of it, in which the first two measures are replaced by ascending staccato eighth notes, and the serenity of the second subject starts to fade as we crescendo into a passage marked by sforzando accents low in the piano right-hand range. And Beethoven also introduces some briefly unsettling chromaticism, although we never really leave E-flat major. Those increasing disruptions of the serene flow serve to prepare us for the closing section, which continues the sforzando accents now linked to across-the-bar ties, and which features a gradual increase from forte to fortissimo, and the joining together of right and left hands in octave eighth notes, until we pause on a tonic 6-4 chord, an E-flat chord with a fifth in the bass, the sort of chord that we expect will take us to a dominant tonic cadence. But it doesn't, at least not right away, 
as some unexpected chromatic intrusions in the left-hand chords join with references to the opening dotted note motives which began the movement in the right hand impede our progress for a few measures. But finally, the expected cadence on E-flat comes through in a little codetta section, not much to it actually, a short repeated motive, although it does have a somewhat yearning quality to it, takes us to the end of the exposition. The development section which follows comes in the somewhat surprising key of C major, although it is not at all surprising that Beethoven would start by developing the rhythmically dynamic first theme with its dotted eighth and sixteenth note leaps up the triad. We don't stay in C major very long, though, before some chromatic diminished seventh chords point us in the direction of F minor. Having arrived in F minor, we are presented with a new theme, although it doesn't really sound completely new. It begins in longer note values like the second subject, and the broken chord accompaniment pattern also recalls the second subject. But although it shares certain mannerisms with the second subject and with the closing section, its overall shape is original, and of course, since this is the development section, it doesn't stay in one place very long in terms of key center. After eight bars in F minor, the melody shifts up a perfect fourth to B flat minor, and a four-measure tag extends it further to its relative major, D flat, where we sit for a while as the texture reduces to a duet between the two hands in sixths and thirds. But the gentle duet eventually gives way to a crescendo and more emphatic repeated chords, and as we seem to be returning to C minor with a fortissimo climax, the bass line reaching down to the lower register, the texture suddenly lightens to quiet staccato chords, and we decrescendo our way to the end of a development section, which, in the end, did not spend much of its time actually developing the themes from the exposition. We'll hear from the new F minor theme to the end of the development section. I just want to mention a few things about the recapitulation. The first subject returns as expected, and the modulatory transition that follows also makes use of motives very similar to those heard earlier, although now, of course, it doesn't bring about a modulation to E flat major. Instead, and somewhat surprisingly, 
it moves to F major, where the second subject is presented. But the F major is soon transformed to F minor, from which it is a short jog to the key we expected all along, the original tonic of C minor, where an abbreviated version of the second subject is represented. But the original recapitulation of the second subject in F major is really the only surprise here, and of course that was only temporary, and the closing section and codetta unfold in more or less predictable fashion, although the codetta now in C minor has a somewhat more ominous feel about it. It's an interesting movement to be sure. Does it, on the whole, live up to its early indications of dramatic intensity, that sense of dramatic urgency which we so often link to Beethoven's use of this particular key? Perhaps not, but of course, we have two movements yet to go. We would expect the slow movement in A-flat major to four-time and marked adagio molto to provide respite from the C minor restlessness of the first movement, or at least part of the first movement. And it does. It begins with a simple but elegant melody, which starts on the tonic note, moves up a third to a gentle dissonance by way of an ornamental turn, returns to tonic with a dotted eighth sixteenth note figure, and then leans into the next phrase via a chromatically raised half-step. All this to the accompaniment of very sonorous black chords in the left hand. The next two bars move the same idea up a step against a slightly more complex arpeggio-based accompaniment. Here are the first four measures. Whereas the first four bars alternate between tonic and dominant harmonically, the next four branch out a bit, moving first to the subdominant chord. They also introduce a distinctive new melodic idea, a series of dotted rhythm figures, double dotted eighths followed by thirty seconds, in this instance, which ascend majestically, crescendoing gradually, and peaking grandly on the upper tonic note over an arpeggiated subdominant chord. The melody then makes its way gingerly back down the scale, pausing for a brief decorative flourish before alighting again on the lower tonic. As the tonic chord reappears, the eight-measure theme is presented again, but in a slightly different version. The yearning chromatic half-steps that leaned from the first phrase to the second and from the second to the third are now missing, and grace notes have now been added to the double-dotted eighth-thirty-second note combinations heard before. The final two bars, this time cadencing back on the tonic chord of A-flat, have been adapted to the new harmonic circumstances and the top voice has been simplified, although the top voice in the left hand beneath it has increased considerably in activity, with a particularly notable descending chromatic line added right before the cadence. The left hand part in general has increased its level of activity throughout, 
now providing a gently pulsating flow of 16th notes underneath the melody. Here's a repeat of the original eight-measure theme with the changes I just mentioned. A transition of sorts to the B section follows. Instead of a flowing melodic line, we hear a series of flourishes. The most notable of these is a series of quick, almost glissando-like descending grace note arpeggios, delivered forte and later fortissimo between a series of cadences touching on different keys, eventually settling on a dominant seventh on B flat. Shortly after that point, we hear a new, sustained, lyrical melody, which seems like the beginning of the B section proper. It begins on D, the third of the B-flat dominant seventh chord, on which we've been sitting for a while, and ascends with a series of expressive gestures as we alternate between dominant seventh and tonic chords in the newly established key of E-flat major. Following that first four-bar presentation of the new melody, it repeats with a highly ornamented, arabesque-like series of gestures that at times have only a remote relationship with the original melodic statement. We'll hear that far, from the beginning of the B section up to a little taste of the ornamental arabesques to which I just referred. As the B section continues, new melodic ideas are introduced, including a gently ascending, chromatically inflected melodic line over offbeat eighth note left hand chords, and later some interlocking triplet motives as we move to the key of C minor. I'm not going to play the remainder of this section, but it is arguably one of the most attractive parts of the movement. Eventually, we return to A flat major, the original tonic key, and a variant of the opening theme is presented now newly embellished and incorporating triplets in the left-hand accompaniment. The original transition passage then recurs, somewhat modified now to include some accented chromatic chords, which will deposit us 
not in E-flat major, as the first transition did, but back into the original tonic of A-flat major. And it is in that key that the B-section melody is now reprised, with its arabesques and interlocking triplets intact. Other keys are hinted at with secondary dominant chords along the way, but soon we're securely back in A-flat major, and the original A-section melody returns, quite simply now, with a minimum of ornamentation, although with new, quite subtle, rhythmic accompaniment in the left hand. A gentle coda brings us quietly to the end of this very lovely movement. Here is a brief excerpt, beginning at the end of the final transition into the final A section and brief coda. After the wonderful respite provided by the slow movement, we might well assume that in the finale, marked prestissimo, in duple time and back in C minor, we will return to the sort of dramatic urgency that we so often associate with Beethoven's C minor compositions. And to an extent, this is what we get. But, as in the first movement, it is not unequivocal. The opening slightly ominous six-note motive, a bit longer than a single measure, tells much of the story. It begins softly on an offbeat on the tonic note of C, dips down immediately to the raised lower neighbor, B natural, and then right back to C, jumps up a fourth to F, played twice with staccato eighth notes, and then drops a step to the third scale degree. Here is a slowed down example. 
A variant of this idea follows immediately in the next measure, the first three notes repeating, but the ascending leap is now up A minor sixth to an A flat, which falls a half step to the G below. The third measure presents us with another variant, this time the leap being up an octave to a C. The fourth measure, which finally introduces an actual chord, a secondary dominant in the left hand, consists of a somewhat new idea. The C, via an ornamental turn, now moves up a fourth to an F, after which it descends the scale, ending on a B natural harmonized by a dominant seventh chord. That initial first measure idea is now repeated a couple of times, starting on the dominant, after which Beethoven introduces some new ideas based on staccato arpeggios and scale fragments. But the initial idea does not go away. A variant of it reappears twice more before we cadence on C minor to conclude the first subject. Here is the entire first subject going into the modulatory transition. It's mostly generic scale fragments and arpeggios, but the initial leading tone back to tonic motion, the second and third notes of the original motive, continues to be heard, particularly in the left hand. I just referred to that last passage as the modulatory transition, but the fact is that it doesn't really modulate. It just comes to a stop on a dominant seventh chord on G, which we're still probably going to hear as the dominant chord in the key of C minor. But there's a fermata on that chord, and then after the briefest of pauses, we simply start up again in a new key, the relative major key of E flat major which is the key we'd expect to find in the average sonata form movement at this point. Now, in the typical sonata form movement, you would also expect to find a reasonably clear contrast in style between the first and second subjects or themes. First themes are sometimes more rhythmically active compared to second themes, which might be more sustained and lyrical. And when the first theme or subject is in minor and the second in the relative major, that's all the more reason to expect contrast. And so it's not surprising here when Beethoven's second subject is less dramatic and intense than the first. But in this case, the contrast is extreme. The second subject is not simply undramatic, it is almost sedate, and in fact, not particularly interesting. The first two-bar phrase starts on an offbeat like the first subject, and then marches up and down the scale in staccato notes harmonized with block chords. This idea is then repeated in various guises, with a descending staccato line as a tag, even as the original opening motive keeps getting reiterated in the left-hand bass. At the end of my excerpt, and after an authoritative cadence on E-flat major, you heard a little of the beginning of the closing section, most notable for its tremolo octaves in the right hand and the staccato punctuating chords in the left. But we are going to move on to the development section. In a typical sonata form movement, 
The question generally is, which theme or themes will Beethoven seize upon in the development section, and what will he do with them? Well, this is a brief development section, and almost completely given over to transforming and playing with motives from the first subject, the first measure, to be more precise. He's also on the move tonally, of course, as you would expect in any development section. Here is the entire development section. It's not that long, and the most interesting thing arrives in the last few measures. This excerpt begins at the start of the development section and takes us a few measures into the recapitulation. As I suggested earlier, Beethoven is in single-minded pursuit of the first measure motive here, and as he moves on, he's particularly concerned with notes two to five of that first measure motive, the leading tone scooping back up to the tonic and then leaping upwards. But interestingly, right in the last few measures of the development section, he switches to a new motive, related to the earlier ones, yes, but with a distinctive personality all its own. I'm talking about the offbeat, short, 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 long motive, with the shorts repeating the same note and the long reached by a downward plunge. It's by no means identical to the famous fate motive of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but it's not exactly unrelated either. Beethoven and a myriad of other composers have used such rhythms before, naturally, and here he is employing it very much as a tag to drive us to the final cadence, actually half cadence, he ends on a full diminished seventh chord with a fermata to prepare us for the return of C minor in the first subject. Still, you can't help but wonder if Beethoven might have glanced at that motive a day or two later and asked himself whether he might be able, at some future time, to use that motive in a more meaningful way in a different piece. Or maybe not. Each piece, after all, occupies its own unique universe. Beethoven's recapitulation section proceeds in more or less normal fashion until we arrive at the second subject, which occurs here not in the original key of C minor, but in C major. The result is that the sort of transformation of the character of the second theme, when a theme first heard in the relative major is now heard in the tonic minor key, that sort of transformation is completely missing here. The recap of the closing section proceeds normally, adjusted for the new key, and a last-minute shift in the direction of D-flat major. But there is an added coda section which, after a fermata, starts up in D-flat major by quoting the second subject. Then a few bars later, the tempo shifts briefly to adagio, and we experience another fermata, this one prefaced by the rapid arpeggiation of a dramatic diminished seventh chord. But immediately after that, tempo one is restored, and we move quickly, first toward F minor, but in the last five measures, toward the final cadence in C major, powered by a mixture of motivic fragments from the first subject and the second. Here is an example beginning from just before the first of the two fermatas heading toward the coda.
It's not exactly an undramatic conclusion to the movement, but I'm not sure it fully realizes the dramatic potential inherent in the opening subject. And the final measures on C major were certainly necessary, Beethoven could hardly have finished the movement in F minor, but they are perhaps not completely convincing. I can't quite agree with Drake's earlier description of this finale as freakish, but then it's quite possible he had things in mind other than those I've been focusing on. We'll turn now to the second of the sonatas published as Opus 10, Sonata No. 6 in F major. Like all Beethoven sonatas, it has a unique personality, at least part of which is revealed immediately in the opening theme of the first movement, in 3-4 time in marked allegro. The first subject, 12 bars in length, makes use of three distinctive ideas, each four bars in length. The first consists of two soft staccato chords on the tonic, the first on an upbeat, followed by a rather coquettish little triplet figure that revolves around the fifth of that chord, the C. Here's a simplified example, right hand only. Even though my example is incomplete, you could hear that a variant of the initial idea is just repeated down a step in the next two measures. The second thematic idea, also four bars long, again begins with a pickup note and features a series of short, long, syncopated figures with one note tied across the bar, moving first up the tonic triad and then up the F major scale. This phrase, which crescendos for the first two bars and falls off for the second two, comes to repose on the subdominant chord. The third idea is related to the second in its use of short, long syncopations, but also adds some dotted 16th, 32nd note rhythmic figures, as well as trills and grace notes as it heads for the cadence on tonic. Okay, let's see how the three ideas fit together in a real performance. The modulatory transition starts up right after the first subject comes to a cadence on the tonic. It begins as if it's a simple repetition of the opening subject, not an unusual ploy, but already by the second measure introduces chromatic chords which make it clear that we're in the process of changing keys. Beethoven also throws some new repeated motives into the mix, but the most unusual thing about the modulatory transition is actually its brevity. It takes just six measures to undermine the original key of F major and establish the new key of C major. When the second subject arrives, it's immediately clear that it will have a rather different personality, 
even though it does share a few melodic mannerisms with the first subject, most notably these short, long rhythmic syncopations. But like many second subjects, it is broader in scope, unfolding in longer note values, although a continued sense of rhythmic energy is assured by the constant 16th note broken chord accompaniment in the left hand. Here's a performance, starting with the fairly brief modulatory transition and continuing to the end of the second subject. While the second subject may be more expansive in style, it is, as you could hear, by no means introverted. It begins piano but swells up immediately in the course of its first phrase, decrescendoing toward the tail end. It does the same in the second phrase, which is a variant of the first, starting on the dominant of the new key. By the third phrase, which begins in a similar manner, but soon evolves into a busier texture, dominated by eighth notes and sixteenth note scale fragments, we have reached the level of fortissimo, with sforzando accents sprinkled throughout. The last section acts as something of a bridge to the closing section, which repeats its initial two-bar motive with its characteristic staccato marks at the end of each measure in the left hand against plunging 32nd note arpeggios in the right hand, carrying us for a while into C minor. From there, and now back in C major, we hear another rhythmically charged linking passage that takes us to the initially quieter codetta, characterized by short staccato melodic phrases and sustained trills in right and left hands. Four measures before the exposition comes to a close, the codetta crescendos into a fortissimo surge of activity that brings it to a rousing conclusion. Here is the closing section, codetta, and final cadence. The development section comes next. You'll recall that when talking about the first movement in the C minor sonata, opus 10, number 1, earlier, I said that the development section for that movement spent relatively little time in developing the themes and motives from the exposition, compared, for example, to other sonata form movements we've already looked at. That does, in fact, seem to be the case for this development section as well. He begins it by single-mindedly pouncing on the last two bars of the exposition, the three staccato eighth notes that descend the dominant chord. He quotes this rather innocuous three-note motive again and again, initially on the dominant chord of D minor, first in both hands, and then shifting for a while to the left hand, with the right hand spinning out quick little rising and falling scale fragments against it, some triplet-based, some based on sixteenth-note patterns. Soon, the staccato eighth notes are back up in the right hand, now fully harmonized in block chords, while the left hand takes over the swirling sixteenth note patterns against it. 
I suppose you could argue that these little swirling scale fragments derive from patterns somewhat akin to them in the brief modulatory transition, but I doubt that too many listeners are going to hear that connection. Here are the final bars of the exposition and the beginning of the development section. About the recapitulation, I'm again going to say fairly little. Again, the first subject returns, but in the wrong key temporarily. The first phrase actually returns in D major rather than the original tonic of F major, a novel key that Beethoven sets up very purposefully by ending the development section on the dominant of D major. Then, after a clever transition in G minor, he uses the familiar triplet motive from the first subject to steer us in the direction of F major where the second phrase of the first subject now enters. From that point on, things proceed more or less normally until we reach the final cadence. That being the case, we're going to move on now to the second movement, a somewhat unusual allegretto in F minor and 3-4 time. The first section is something of a rounded binary form. The first part, eight bars long, begins a little threateningly, the melody delivered in octaves between right and left hands. As we proceed, we head toward a flat major, and the mood softens a bit, although the texture thickens and becomes more complex, as we head for the cadence in that key. Those eight bars are then repeated. The middle part, consisting of a simple but very effective sequential repetition of the opening two bars, which ascends up the scale quite dramatically, comes to a halt on the dominant of F minor. At that point, a variant of the opening melody from the first part returns right hand alone at first up an octave, although after four bars, the left hand enters to harmonize with it. This time, that melody is extended with new ideas, including some new repeated strong beat dissonances. This is followed by a pair of cadential tags, which contribute some dynamic climaxes before the final cadence ends softly. This section is then repeated as well. Here is the first section without the second repeat.
The middle section of the movement begins in D-flat major and manages the sound quite Schubertian before Schubert. Rhythmically, it's rather repetitive, mostly a series of half-note quarter-note measures in block chords with the occasional weak beat sforzando accent tossed in. But the harmony is lushly attractive and some of the unexpected key juxtapositions particularly effective. Here's a bit of the middle section. The first section then returns, somewhat varied by the rhythmic displacement of the melody in the right hand, and the movement concludes more vigorously than one might have expected. The finale, F major, 2-4 time, and Mark Presto, is an exuberant movement from beginning to end. The left hand starts with a highly energetic first theme, which, after an upbeat, begins with three repeated staccato eighth notes on tonic, followed by a leap down a fourth to a fourth staccato eighth note. The next measure presents a similar pattern, starting on the third of the tonic chord, and the next beginning on the fifth of the chord, employs a swirl of sixteenth notes to take us back down to the third. Here is a simplified example. After four bars, the theme is imitated up an octave in the right hand as the left continues a contrapuntal line against it. And four measures after that, the right hand enters with the theme again up a fifth this time, while the left hand now, moved up to the treble clef range, moves against it with parallel thirds. The imitation completed, Beethoven then develops the idea first heard in the third measure, the swirling sixteenths on the second beat of that measure as he moves away from F major and toward the new key of C major. Let's hear that much. Having arrived at the key of the dominant, we are presented with what might be considered a second subject, but it's short consisting primarily of broken thirds and lower neighbor tones, and it's not entirely convincing as an independent melodic statement. In fact, it sounds more like an episodic bridge to the next idea, still in the key of the dominant and much more distinctive, even though it is in fact based to a degree on the opening measure of the first subject. Harmonically, it's quite simple, 
consisting of alternating tonic and dominant chords over a repeated tonic pedal. Is this the real second subject? Is it the closing section? Of course, in the end, it doesn't really matter what you call these components, but the fact that there's so much ambiguity in this regard shows that this is not the most conventional of sonata movements. Here's an excerpt starting with what we'll call the bridge section, leading from the first subject to the second, and including a little of the repetition of the first subject. Compared to other sonata form expositions we've looked at, this is an especially short and simple one, but its vigor and infectious qualities are undeniable. The development section that follows, not surprisingly, focuses largely on the first subject. What is surprising is the key in which the development section begins, A-flat major, obviously quite distant from C major, where the exposition left off. Beethoven was not the only composer to experiment with unusual key relationships between different sections within a movement, or sometimes between movements themselves, as we approach early Romanticism in music. But I'm not sure if anyone does it more audaciously. And in this case, plunging from C major to A flat major is all the more compelling because the basic melodic materials are relatively simple. Beethoven starts off the development section with an introduction consisting of a variant of the opening subject played in octaves with heavy sforzando accents on the downbeats, climbing up the A-flat major triad. Five measures into the development section, he then quotes the first subject in its original form in the right hand against broken third accompaniment in the left. There is a hint of imitation as he proceeds, but his main interest seems to be in developing the melodic idea from the third bar of the first subject, that measure featuring the descending swirl of sixteenth notes, which he does in both hands, often against accented half notes in the accompaniment. In the process, he briefly traverses a series of tonal centers, B-flat minor, F minor, C minor, G minor, and D minor. Let's hear a little of the development section starting with the last few measures of the exposition. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard Beethoven put aside the first subject motives and pick up on the second subject. He's in D major at this point and sits there for a while before, through a series of sequences, maneuvering his way back to F major, the original tonic key, where he brings back a variant of the first subject in a free recapitulation of sorts, which brings back that subject first in F major and then later in G minor and B flat major. There is again some imitation involved, but the transitional episode that follows has quite a different and more dramatic personality this time around, consisting largely of an ongoing 16th note figuration pattern which threatens to take us very far afield tonally, 
but as is typical in recapitulations, ends up right back in the key of F major. A version of the second subject then delivers us to a resounding cadence to finish the movement. Here's the conclusion of the development section going into the recapitulation without the repeat. It's an interesting sonata, certainly very different from the first in C minor, but not without its sometimes very aggressive charms. The third sonata from Opus 10, the D major sonata, is also a very worthy piece, but we're not going to get to it today. For our next episode, we'll look at the violin sonatas of Opus 12. 